Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the start line by two media legends. I could spend 10 minutes bringing up their impressive credentials from L.A. Weatherman to co-founder of Premier Radio Networks. Instead, we'll talk to them like they're old friends. We welcome from the Media Path Podcast, Louise Palanker and Fritz Coleman. Nice to be with hey, you, Sean. Friends, let's go beyond the mic. We see born in Buffalo, New York, and influenced by teachers, including Mrs. Flyman, who yeah. got your attention with a yo-yo. How have other people influenced you along the way in your career? Let's see, during my career, well, my dad kind of uh, financed Premier Radio at a very uh, fledgling days. He's a, he was a furrier in Buffalo, New York for Reasons known only to him believed in me enough to sort of, you know, back our, our little company. So I, I got together with fellow disc jockeys at KISS FM. At that time, I was writing for Rick Dees, who had a syndicated countdown show called the Rick Dees Weekly Top 40. And I met fellow disc jockeys at KISS FM, Tim Kelly and Steve Lehman, and we put together Premier Radio. So I would say that I was influenced by the people that I was working with when we launched our company. Because, you know, what I kind of learned early on was that if it were easy, everyone would have a company. It's most people really should work for another company because it's really stressful to have to have your own company. But, you know, we kind of pulled it off and we launched it and Premier, I think maybe 15 years post-launch was purchased by J-Core, which became... Clear Channel, which became iHeart. Fritz, born in Philadelphia, how did your time as a Patriot at Grand Valley High School change the way your life was going to be to where it is now? Yeah, it, it was in suburban Philadelphia. Uh, I, listen, there's nothing secret about my start. You know, my background was stand-up comedy before I became a weatherman. and I was the classic only child star for attention inappropriate seeking of attention in class and school, all of the things that you would expect from a comedian. I did plays in high school and just loved getting feedback for being on stage. And so one thing led to another and uh, I made a career out of it, which is to the astonishment of my family and the rest of the world. Pretty crazy. Communications have changed from when you started your careers, even my career, to now. How has radio and TV changed, evolving, and in some cases disintegrating in front of your eyes? Oh, that's a really insightful question, Sean. We used to all kind of be focused on the same channels. And if you were a kid in a certain town, for example, I in Buffalo, New York, and Fritz in, in Philadelphia, you we listened to one station and you and we watched one show last night and we went to school and we talked about what we had seen and what we had all heard. Now it's we're very diffused and we're, you know, kind of we're all sort of being able to fine tune. It's almost like the media landscape is is like the magazine rack, where if you're into like, you know, a certain brand of motorcycles, you can just listen to stuff about that for days. And so what's happened is it was a it was a one-sided conversation with everyone listening to the same thing. And now it is a 360 conversation where, you know, what I say influences what someone else says moving forward, and then they can talk back to us. Almost everything that you put on the internet or that you put in a podcast allows somebody to respond, and that informs the, the, you know, the next broadcast that we do. So it's more of a conversation, and it, you know, we're all kind of like the play and the audience. If, we, if you have a Facebook account, you are, you are both audience 
and performer? Well, I'll tell you, um, when I started in television, I was a stand-up comedian. I got hired to do weekend and vacation relief weather from being seen on stage at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. That went on to become a 40-year television career. So I was hired at the beginning of my weather experience to be entertaining. The weather in California doesn't change between April and October. It's morning clouds and fog, hazy afternoon sun. So they really wanted somebody to come on and be the palate cleanser between the tragedy and the sports. In other words, I was the interstitial material between you know, the, the war and car chase news and scores of the local teams. I could have fun with it as long as I somewhere within my presentation got a modicum of weather information out there. They wanted me to have fun. They wanted me to interact with the co-anchors, have some fun, do some humor, get on to the next thing. Well, over time, many things changed. The most notable thing was that competition increased. When I started, there was three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Now in Los Angeles, where I spent 40 years, they have seven or eight television stations that broadcast not only during the news times, but all day long. So the, the competition has increased exponentially. Add to that the technological changes. For instance, the clicker became important. So television news became a buyer's market as opposed to a seller's market, meaning when we watched the news when we were growing up, we had Walter Cronkite and the Huntley Brinkley Report, and there was one newscast, and you had to tune them in at 6.30 at night. When the clicker came in, cable and digital presentation, it became a buyer's market where you can watch the news anytime you want. You controlled what news you watched and for how long you watched it by clicking the clicker. So the control went to the audience and not with the broadcaster. And then along came climate change. And climate change dictated a change in the weather because now everybody's taking weather very seriously. I was hired as a comedian. I am totally unqualified to take the weather really seriously. So now we, we have to be, you know, we've got bomb cyclones like they have on the East Coast. We have the worst tornado outbreaks in 100 years. We have all this catastrophic weather. There's no more personality involved in weather. It's get to the weather, give me the information. This is no joke. So the technology has changed. The place that the weather person fills in the newscast has changed. So I retired two years ago, having been at NBC Los Angeles for 40 years, and I stepped off the iceberg at precisely the right moment, I believe. Oh, nice metaphor. Co-host of the Media Path podcast, Louise Palenker and Fritz Coleman, join us beyond the mic. You talk about hyper-specific focus, but here's some things that bring us together, like the phenomenon like Wordle, social media, 500 TV stations where nothing's ever on. What has been lost and gained in the media industry? Okay, well, I'll tell you what's changed with the way people consume news now. As I mentioned before, in the old days, if you wanted to get a smattering of all the news of the day, local politics, national politics, international affairs, you would watch Walter Cronkite at 6.30 or 7 o'clock, and he would give a little smattering of each. And then what happened over time, 
was that cable came in and various news outlets began to specify and become more politically aligned. For instance, you have Fox News, then you have MSNBC, so you have right and left and everything in between. The deregulation of cable meant that you didn't have to do what you did in broadcast television, which is have equal time for all opinions. Now everybody can say what they want. Also, as I mentioned before, it's a buyer's market. So if people want to have news about local politics, they'll go to one station. If they want to have sports news, they'll go to ESPN or a sports internet facility. If they want to have car racing news, they go somewhere else. So people can choose what they choose to consume and uh, how specific they want to get. So in the old days, when you watched one newscast and it gave you everything, I would say that was horizontal learning. Now it's vertical learning. So if it, and, and this is dangerous for democracy, I think. If a kid loves skateboarding, doesn't care about politics, doesn't care about anything else cultural, but just wants to learn about skateboarding, he can spend all of his free time consuming information about skateboarding. And so the learning is vertical. So you know a lot about one subject that's narrow and tall. So I think the problem with that is, what does that do to the voting public? What does that do to keeping an informed electorate when it's time for young people like the Gen Z people to make up their mind who they want to put in political office? Oh, I wish I knew who was running, but I spent all my time watching skateboard videos on YouTube because they're not forced to get a wide diet of information. You see what I'm saying? So people know a lot about one subject but not enough about everything to make an informed opinion about it, like picking elected officials. That's my opinion. And sometimes a lot of what they know isn't even reality. It's just being presented yeah. as reality. So. Well, that's the other thing. That's, that, that's the other thing, the fake news aspect of it, because the problem with consuming news on the Internet is you don't have editors and, and gatekeepers sort of watching the news to make sure that it represents truth, which is what broadcasters do, you know, uh, broadcast television does. On the Internet, your stuff isn't curated at all. They, it can be made out of whole cloth. It can be totally fabricated with no devotion to the truth at all. That's another problem. Weezy's right about that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, contributing to that problem is that, you know, in order to make money, it's a competition for our attention. So, you know, as we've seen throughout history, fiction sells better than nonfiction. And so a lot of people making up stories are getting more attention than people simply telling you the truth. And that's what I think exactly. consumers have to, you know, have to be aware of is, is that myths are way more colorful Yep. And also, you know, myths that get people engaged where they can be part of solving the problem, you know, sending everyone on a little scavenger hunt is exciting. But let's just kind of also be aware that, you know, yesterday my husband received an email that sent him on like this kind of mad scramble to get something taken off his credit card bill. It was it was a spam email. It, it was an email telling him that they were renewing his Norton antivirus protection plan. And by the time he got to me, he was, he was fuming. And I said, Ronnie, I, I think that's just spam. So, so much of what's getting our attention is an actual lie. Yeah. And, you know, taking- As Mark Twain said, yeah. never let 
the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah. It's like everyone's getting a call about our car's auto insurance. It's expired. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've been trying to reach you. Should have taken care of that. I know you have. I know. We'll talk about your favorite moments in media in a second. But first, it's time for the Rocky Nate. Eight random questions answered with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure but the rule. When we have a lady and a gentleman, the lady will answer first. Okay. Favorite mystery series. I'm not really into mystery. I'll say Nancy Drew, just out of the sake of respecting my history. I don't know if it's a mystery series. I'll say Bosch. Very nice. Ah, Bosch. Amazon Prime. That's a crime thing, but it's kind of mystery. It's a mystery to solve the crime. Person you wanted to interview for your podcast, but haven't been able to yet. I'll say Barry Gibb. I'll go with Barry Gibb first. I'll defer to Wheezy. I'll just draft on her enthusiasm. <laughs> Barry Gibb. I'll tell you what we would like to do. We, we, we have fun in two silos of talent. One is anybody who's iconic show business person, because we're both obsessed with show business, and we love that. Also, we love discussing politics with a broad range of people. So anybody who has a lot of notoriety in either of those fields, show business or politics, we love. Favorite of all your interviews? Well, first, I have to say Henry Winkler, just because he's my favorite person and my mentor. And let's see, but a surprise that we, of someone that we met along the way that we thought was wonderful. Peter Noon. Peter Noon was wonderful. <laughs> and he's funny. Yeah, from Herman's Hermits, Sean, he was pound for pound one of the most entertaining <laughs> people we've ever talked to. He's hysterical. He could be a stand-up comedian. And he's got these great anecdotes about being on the road with Herman's Hermits and being in show business. I, I just loved it. We just did him two weeks ago, and I'm still thinking about it. And a favorite of mine is we we had an episode with Tony Dow and Bill Moomy. So Tony Dow from Leave It to Beaver and Bill Moomy from Lost in Space, and they that you know having having been child actors and 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 grown into these warm, loving, wonderful, deep men. It's just gratifying for baby boomers to 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 visit with folks that they feel like are members of their own family and to see that they're okay and that they're awesome. And, That's a great point. Yeah, and also yeah. the say I'll say the same for the Cow Hills because I, I made a movie about the Cow Hills, and so I've been on their podcast and they've been on our podcast, and they feel like family members to me at this point. And so those are some of my favorites. But he's a closer friend of hers than he is mine. Michael Reagan, Ronald Reagan's son, was our guest early on in the podcast, and you know he's known for his right wing radio show and his political views. But when he came on our podcast, he had some dark experiences in his life that he spent a lifetime recovering from. He was so open with us and honest and self-reflective. It was impressive. Do you agree with that, Weezy? That, that was a great hour. Absolutely. And, you know, Michael's written a lot of books. His first book where he writes about his childhood is just one of the most illuminating reads. This is a guy who invented himself. I mean, you you know, you want to learn about perseverance or, you know, self-creation. You know, you think, oh, you don't have to do any self-creation. You're the son of Ronald Reagan and, and Jane Wyman. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. Everybody does. And it's a common humanity of just figuring out who am I? What do I stand for? What matters to me? What do I want to achieve? Because having something handed to you does not feel nearly as good as achieving mm-hmm. it on your own, you know, being open to learning rather than having someone lecturing you. You want to be the one who discovered it when you were ready to discover it. You know, I want to kind of bring that kind of information 
to the world where people who are open to receive it. I don't want to try to pound anybody over the head with something that I think, you know, is what they should value. We each have our own values and we have what connects us, but we, we each have to determine like what matters to us and then, you know, go about being that person, representing what matters to you in the world. And Michael really personifies that. Yeah. And I, I think broadening out the answer to your question, Sean, which is, I think the same thing you go for with beyond the mic. And that is, you love guests that are not afraid to reveal the truth about themselves, even if it's something the general public's not aware of. So those are the great guests when they, when we really feel like we've made a connection and get them to give us an honest answer about something that isn't always flattering to them, but they're very honest about it. In a disagreement, do you think it's better to be right or the peacemaker? Peacemaker. I agree. What scares you? Operation of democracy. I'm going to go with that. Why is entertainment the most important form of self-love for each of you? It's it's soothing. We each need to know how to self-soothe. I think it makes us kinder and it makes us kinder to ourselves. Good answer. I, I would say that entertainment is art. And I believe that art is human beings at their best. Uh, good art, uh, satisfying, interesting uh, art is is makes the world a better place whether it's music or film or books. And so I think it improves the planet when there's good art, which is entertainment. What's the best round of golf you've ever shot? And have either of you ever had a hole in one? I probably shot an 82 at some point. (laughs) Fritz has watched me play a lot of golf. We play golf together. No, I've never shot a hole in one. No. I play golf to make those that try really hard feel better about themselves. (laughs) I'm a bad golfer. The whole Zen aspect of golf is when you take the pressure off yourself and say, I just want to go out and have laughs with my friends and, and not even take the game seriously. I find that when I do that, I do much better. I haven't played in a long time. But that's how we would do it. We would just go out with our buddy Roger and just laugh. And have fun. He was a good golfer and Wheezy and I would make jokes. I just like to stand behind him and watch him tee off because that ball soars. <laughs> if you could do one more thing over again, what would it be? Second grade. I, mean, <laughs> I could nail it now, I think. Is that your answer? That's a good answer. <laughs> I, I dropped out of college early because I, I got a job offering radio that I couldn't refuse. And I was going to college at a communication school at Temple University studying with teachers who had never worked a day in the business. They were all, um, you know, theoretical broadcasters. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go get a job that will be greater than any job this professor's had in the business. So I quit college. If I had it to do again, I would go back to college and I would, I would go in a film program and learn how to write movies. Wow. Learn how to write. If you're enjoying these conversations, please check out another Beyond the Mic episode to find more actors, artists, and people you need to know. We'd also appreciate a like and subscribe on the Apple or Good Pods app. Now, it's time for the back half. We're joined by the host of the Media Path podcast, Luis Palenker and Fritz Coleman Beyond the Mic. Friends, how did the pandemic change the way you see yourselves, and how did you adjust? I think you wind up doing a lot of introspection, you know, if you're going to approach it in the healthiest way possible, given the unhealthy circumstances, you, you want to do some introspection. You want to find out what, what matters to you. 
you know, what will sustain your peace of mind and your emotional well-being. I'm kind of a loner. And and so for for me, the pandemic, at least in terms of the day-to-day, wasn't as difficult as the people who really need to replenish by being social. For people who replenish by being solitary, it's been a lot easier. So I, I think we I wanted what I wanted to do was, you know, reach out to people I haven't talked to in a while, you know, use the opportunity of having pressed pause on our lives to sort of you and also utilize technology to reach out to people that I want to stay connected to. We all kind of ramped up in terms of what can be done remotely. Hopefully that will be more healthy for the planet moving forward if we can go into work less often and get more done. You know, grandparents certainly learned how to use Zoom and, and connect. So in a lot of ways, it was a, an opportunity to learn. You know, in other ways, it's been really damaging. I'm not sure what we've done to our kids. This is a social experiment that I don't know that we could afford to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's been an opportunity to learn and grow and also to understand more about what what connects us. The virus doesn't care, you know, what you believe in or what you what color you are or what religion you are. It's it you know, it 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 just we're all susceptible to it. So I mean, I'm hoping that we that we learned what, that we have so much more in common that we have different and that the way to solve a problem like a virus is to unify rather than to divide, as some folks have been attempting. I'm hoping that the takeaway is, you know, we'll do much better if we unite to fight something like like a pandemic. Well, Weezy kind of described my same, we have, we have similar personalities. I've been going to therapy for 40 years to learn how to not isolate so along comes quarantine and forced isolation so i was comfortable in that environment i thought hey everybody's experiencing my life now so just like wheezy i spend long periods of time i'm retired now i i write i still work on my comedy i do other writing and I spend long hours alone. This is not a stretch for me. And I agree with Wheezy. I have many friends who get their human connection by being with people physically. Uh, I, I didn't have that same problem. But I have found that ironically, I have reached out to people I haven't been in touch with. For instance, my old boss in the Navy and I have connected and we do Zooms together. My old friends from Buffalo Radio and I are connecting with Zooms together. So I think it sort of forced us to connect with the people we had been neglecting because we were the momentum and the busyness of life. There was literally no noticeable change in the momentum or the social aspect of my life other than reaching out to people digitally. That's it. May 31st, 1985, a day that Fritz has burned into his mind. Anita Morris, Charles Grodin, and Johnny Carson. One wonderful day. Good job. Nice research. I try. (laughs) Fritz, why is comedy better and sometimes yet worse than it was in that time? Well, can I do a little side story about that and then I'll answer your question? definitely. That was the first night I was booked on The Tonight Show, but I never made it on because Charles Grodin, who's a very amusing, dry man, would not stop talking. So he went too long on his little conversation with Carson and I got bumped. And I got bumped another time after that when Johnny got a little verbose with Heather Locklear because he was impressed with her recently uh, enhanced physical attributes. (laughs) 
So he went and talked about her, you know, too. So I got bumped twice before I finally made it on. But that ended up being a gift to me because by the time I finally made it on, my nerves were gone. I just relaxed. I said, let's get this over with because I can't think about it anymore. Charles Grodin, because he went long, I, I missed my first shot. But but that's a very good question. When And the Carson Show is a great sort of microcosm of what I'm talking about. When you prepared for a Carson show in those days, you had to work clean. And not only on the Carson show, but as you were building up to your first Carson performance, a talent coordinator by the name of Jim McCauley, who was in charge of the comedians on that show, would come and see various comedians at the club and would work on your, what we call set with you, your hip six, your, your tight six minutes to go on Carson. And if he was ever in a club, whether you were auditioning for him or not, and he saw you be blue, if he saw you be dirty, you lost your chance to be on the Carson show. You had to be pristine because he couldn't trust that you wouldn't go off and use style language on the Tonight Show. And so it was a great discipline because it, it, it's easier to be funny when you have no control over profanity. It's easier to make something funny because it's the shock value. But in those days, you couldn't do it for television. Then along came cable, and cable loosened up everything. And you had Deaf Comedy Jam on HBO, which was a great uh, uh, venue for African-American comedians to get exposure. What I hated about it was that it just unleashed profanity and there was no discipline in performing and it changed everybody's expectation about language. And so when you, and all cable did that, then guys got Showtime specials and HBO specials and they could use any kind of language they want. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with dropping a, an F-bomb occasionally. Sometimes it sweetens the act up beautifully, but when it's the whole act, it's bad. And then what happens after people see you do it on cable, do it on Def Comedy Jam or HBO or Showtime, they come to the clubs and they expect that same flavor, that same language. And for those of us that don't use that kind of language, it becomes hard. If you work in a comedy club and there are seven or eight comedians on the show that night, and the first four comedians have just unloaded a lot of bad language, then I try to remain clean because I was brought up in the era where you had to be clean. Plus, I was doing stand-up when I was still working in television news, and my boss said, you can perform in clubs all you want, but if I ever get a complaint about your language or about some of the content, you'll stop. So I had to discipline myself, even though things became a little more liberal. So a very long answer to your question was, I think over time, cable is what sort of... I mean, even though it gave us great First Amendment freedom to talk about what we wanted to, it took the discipline out of staying clean. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. There are some comedians who can tell a funny story and can make you laugh with that story. There are some that can tell a story but drop an F-bomb, mm -hmm. and you lose it because you're shocked they dropped the bomb, and sometimes mm -hmm. you lose the story. Yeah, well, not, not all bad language is bad. Robert Klein and Joan Rivers both told me the same thing at a different time, and he said, one well-placed F-bomb in a 45-minute show can be a goldmine because you haven't overused it. You just snuck it in somewhere when somebody wasn't expecting it, and it can explode. But when you overuse it, that's when it becomes a problem. When it's a crutch in lieu of actual punchlines and stuff, then it's bad. But I agree with what you're saying, Sean, in that if not just profanity, but if they're talking about sexual details, that can be so distracting that you just get desensitized 
Yes. And you and the next comedian who's just trying to do set up punch, you know, tag, there it's lost on an audience that's just had their nether parts awakened, you know, so it's like yeah. that's That's right. And you know, these days we're in such a politically correct environment now that the audience is doing the editing now. You have to be really careful what you talk about in a club, whether it's politics or sex, if it's all if it's all misogynistic or if it's slightly anti-LGBTQ, you the audience can turn on you. They're very they're matter of fact, many would say oversensitive to controversial topics now. So guys edit themselves a lot more now than they used to just because that's the social environment we're in. Weezy, you always say every person has a million stories. What's one you haven't told before? How about the weekend in the hot tub with Bobby Sherman? <laughs> That was just a dream I had. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you a story that I, I think has has meaning. And it's a story that I tell to kids who are experiencing some bullying at school. Because I think a lot of people who have either been the bully or the bullied, it's hard to walk through your childhood or your life without being on either side. And sometimes the bullied becomes the bully just as a self-defense you know, instinct kicks in rather than managing you know, their emotions in a healthy way. They just decide to attack someone before they get attacked. You know, we all go through these learning curves of trying to figure out how to navigate the world. But this is an experience that sort of taught me something about that. And that was that I I lived on Tristan Lane and almost all of the boys on that street were monsters. And, you know, so that was sort of the culture of that street was that the boys were, you know, a little out of control we all played in the street. There weren't play dates. We just all played in the street. We played in the lot next door to the Gramps house. We rode our bikes up and down. And the boys were difficult to navigate because you just never knew if they were going to include you or if they were going to bully you. You, you know, you just kind of went for it. There were nice boys that lived next door, the Schwartz, and that was about it. The, all, the rest of the kids were just kind of wild. So there was this kid named Wayne, and uh, he was in the driveway with Ronnie Tabor. And I rode my bike in and they were playing football on the lawn and they decided in that moment, like, we're not going to have a girl here in these proceedings. So, you know, get out of here. And, you know, all this, you know, mean stuff, which is like, geez, I'm just, just pulled up on my bike. And uh, so there's, you know, there's no need for any kind of animosity. I haven't done anything, you know, but I got, you know, they wanted me gone and I got on my bike and that wasn't enough. I was riding down the driveway. That wasn't enough. Wayne took his foot and shoved the back tire and I fell over and, and broke my arm. And, you know, the parents are calling each other. Wayne says he didn't do it, blah, blah, blah. You know, the kind of kid that does a thing like that has the kind of mother that says, you know, my son would never have done that. Anyway, it was summer, you know, and I had my, you know, I had my arm in a cast and I couldn't swim and the whole thing. I liked these kids and I, you know, kind of understood based on their households why they were the way they were. Whatever things happen. I'm sure he didn't intend for me to break my arm. He was just trying to show off to Ronnie. But cut two years later, and we're in our early 20s, and Wayne's mother comes up to my dad's store, and she's, do, she's doing business, and she says, I got to go. Wayne's in the car. You know, we would have been like 22 years old at this point. She said, my dad, you know, Wayne grew up across the street from us. My dad said, oh, have Wayne come up. And his mother said, oh, no, Wayne's too embarrassed to come up ever since he pushed Louise off her bike. So I don't think about it. Wayne still thinks about it. So, you know, what I tell kids is like, you don't want any kind of behavior that ever that haunts you. 
And if you've done it, if you did it, go on Facebook, find the person and apologize. Get that off your chest. I think it's more toxic to the person that perpetrated it than to the person who received it. I think it's great that he harbored a lifetime of guilt having told his parents <laughs> a lie about that. That's the way people should be, feel bad about what you did. Fritz, you were hired on at NBC4 in L.A. because you could communicate. You were a comedian that didn't know squadoosh about the weather. After 39 years, did you pick anything up? Oh, yeah. There are only five recurring weather patterns in Southern California. And by the third or fourth week, I had those all memorized. The, the weather pattern in California from April to October is morning clouds and fog, hazy afternoon sun, high in the upper 70s to low 80s. Onshore winds to 15 miles an hour in the morning, offshore winds in the evening to 20 to 25 miles an hour. Wheezy, what's your favorite question you've answered as part of your journal series? You know, the most common is like they like someone and they want to know, how do I know if this person likes me and how do I let this person know I like them? I, I think those are my favorite because even though it's a very common question, I can send them to the FAQs, you know, to have that answered. But we know we all have, you know, it's, it's so human to want to love someone and want to be loved in return. And so that never changes. It doesn't change when you're 90. It's the same at 10 as it is at 90. That Those feelings are the same of wanting to belong, wanting to feel a connection, you know, wanting to feel valued, wanting to feel appreciated. And, you know, I tell kids like, you know, more important than you having this exact person love you is like you feeling connected to your community. So do something for someone else. And my most common piece of advice is if you want something, give it away. If you want a friend, be a friend. You know, it's counterintuitive at first. You think, you know, I want my family to respect me. Okay, pick up your clothes, do the dishes, do something for the household. Respect where you live. And that's how you receive respect in return. Fritz, how has working together changed you both? Well, I don't know that I could work with everybody. Weezy and I have been good friends for a long time. She produced one of my one-man shows. We've had a lot of life experiences together. And we have similar interests and similar analysis of life. So, so it made doing this uh, podcast very easy it's just a continuation of the conversation we started a long time ago in our regular lives and again i'm a very singular person i'm an only child i i uh, i didn't have to develop uh, any you know relationships to survive in my house i could run away from my parents so we just have a good relationship two singular people that happen to blend on a lot of what we do so and we both we we also can really count on each other. I mean, this yep. is my fifth podcast, and I I never have to wonder if Fritz is going to be accountable or if Fritz is going to be prepared. He just always is, and I think he knows the same about me. That yep. we've worked with a lot of people who you're not really, and they can be great people, but you're never really exactly sure if you can count on them being where they say they're going to be or doing what they say they're going to do. And with Fritz, he's, he's just extremely, you know, his work ethic is very similar to mine in that we, we love the sense of accomplishment that comes from having done something. And I know you feel the same, Sean, or you wouldn't have this project and, and you know how much work goes into it. And you, and then you get to take, take that pride and that sense of accomplishment and satisfaction from having, having completed it. 
And so Fritz and I share that value, you know, that we probably learned from our parents or that. And I'll, you know, and I'll add something to what you said, Weezy. Yeah. I agree 100%. And that is that you get to a certain age. Uh, and we were talking about college earlier. And the thing that I lament is that I was not nearly as interested in all aspects of life back then that I am now. I can be fascinated by any topic. And that's kind of what we broach on our podcast. We've had a, a wide variation of people from politics, the music industry, acting, television, and I'm interested in all that stuff. And what Weezy said, everybody's got a fascinating story and we, we have the ability to hold a conversation about anything and make them interested, that is the, our uh, interview person, we, we enjoy it ourselves. And so I think as I've gotten older, my interests have broadened and it's really, it really makes it fun to do this podcast. Yeah, I feel the same as Fritz. My interests have, have broadened. I had so, sort of absorbed all of the interests of the world. And we like to really be prepared the way you are, Sean. We, if we have an author coming on, we read the book. And, and people love to be heard. So when they're having a conversation with someone who's read the book, it just makes them open up. You know, they feel validated. So we really just love having those encounters with people and, and learning from them. What do you want your legacy to be? That I care about people. And then I care about connection and that we share more than what divides us and that we're all, we're all part of the same human organism. And I hope that I was able to transmit that message to the best of my ability, that I was able to, you know, be a, be a healer in the world, uh, you know, in, instead of being right, like your, your question earlier about do I need to be right or do I need to be a peacemaker? Well, I, I hope I've spent my life as a peacemaker and I've hope, I hope that I've focused my life on the things that matter rather than trying to just stand out from everybody else. I hope that I've spent my life being inclusive. I hope that I'm assessed as a good human being. I get a great deal of satisfaction in my life doing work for nonprofit organizations doing things that make the planet slightly better. And I want to be known as somebody who brought an occasional smile to people's faces when they needed it. And most of all, I want to be remembered as being a good parent. That's very important to me. It's time for one big question with Louise Polinker and Fritz Coleman beyond the mic. Why is communication so important? And what's the future for our industry? I, I think everybody needs to be heard. And I hope that the future of communication is not just talking, but also listening. And I just think it's really important to, to, folk, to pay attention to what, what may be troubling someone so that you can say something that would, that would uh, heal or soothe. For example, this, this past podcast, we had Mark Elliott who wrote a book about Merle Haggard. And at the very beginning of Merle's life, his father dies. He's nine years old and his father dies and he spends the rest of his life feeling like it was his fault. The one thing I've tried to do throughout my life is be a mentor. And I just want to go back to that nine-year-old and sit with him and say, this was not your fault. I want to say that thing that every person needs to hear because everybody needs to hear something that will absolve them, <laughs> that will that will free them from whatever sort of confine they feel like they're stuck in because they feel like something is true that isn't. 
And I just want to be that person in people's life. I don't know if we can, I think, you know, in the old form of radio where you were simply talking, it was, it was more difficult to do. But now that you're hearing back from people, you know, when we post our show on Facebook, you're hearing back from people. Hopefully I can say something comforting or I can be helpful. Or I can be a part of a conversation that, that, that heals. And that, that's what I would like to do. That was a great answer, Louise. Uh, mine is less uh, metaphysical than yours. I hope that over the next five or 10 years, we figure a way to corral internet information and direct it in a way where people can trust it. So we have, as I mentioned before, gatekeepers, so that the news that people consume on the internet can be trusted. Without taking away people's First Amendment rights, I just want us to figure a way where the information we get from the internet isn't poisoning us. It can be different than what we agree in, but there's enough of a gatekeeping service where at least if it's not true, we're made aware of it. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but I, I, that's my wish. Where can people find you both online? Our, our podcast is called Media Path Podcast. We have a website, mediapathpodcast.com. We are Media Path Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. We are Media Path Podcast on Facebook. And we also have a community group called uh, Media Path with Fritz and Weezy, a podcast community on Facebook. And we'd love to see you there. Yeah, come and look at our group of shows. We have some really interesting ones that fit everybody's interests. They play golf not for the score, but because of the fun. I want to be the peacemaker and want you to listen to the Media Path Podcast. Wherever you find podcasts, we thank Louise Palenker and Fritz Coleman for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for inviting us. You ask such introspective questions, and it really invites people to open up. So we really appreciate you. Good job. That, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.